This is the Overtime Podcast Network. This is the Turn on the Jets Podcast. With the third pick in the 2019 NFL Draft, the New York Jets select Quinnen Williams, nose tackle, Alabama. Now, here's your host, Joe Caparoso. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Turn on the Jets podcast. I'm your host, Joe Caparoso, owner of TurnOnTheJets.com. Today, we got a nice 25-minute interview with Steve Palazzo from Pro Football Focus. Uh, We're going to talk about Sam Darnold. We're going to talk about the Jets offense. We're going to talk about how their analytics and grading system looks at the Jets roster. A really good in-depth conversation about the state of the team and a little more particularly skewed towards focusing on the offense, although we do wrap by talking uh, a little C.J. Mosley and the coaching staff. So make sure to listen through to the entire thing and give Steve a follow on Twitter at PFF underscore Steve. Uh, As a reminder, this podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Hit us with that subscribe. Hit us with that rate. Hit us with that review. Give me a follow on Twitter at jcaparoso. We'll continue to sprinkle in some mailbag episodes here or there before we get into the craziness of training camp. Uh, apologize, the writing has been a little thin lately. We did run a 12-pack of Jamal Adams highlights that ran on Sunday. Uh, I have an article on Robbie Anderson that will be live by the time this is published, and we'll also have another article on Le'Veon Bell by the end of the week. Also from some of our other writers, uh, got a top five ranking of the Jets' current offensive linemen and a closer look at Jamison Crowder. So make sure to uh, follow all that goodness on turnonthejets.com. And remember to check out our store at The Loyalist. Got that Robbie Anderson shirt. Got that Quinn and Williams shirt. Uh, got that Adam Gase shirt. Uh, so go check them out. Um, that's it. We should be back with another episode at some point next week. Likely won't drop on Thursday because it's 4th of July. and We should all get outside and relax a little bit. But we'll have something at some point next week on this feed. So stay with us as always. Uh, and then once we hit July, slamming that foot down on the gas. And we'll be back up to two episodes a week regardless of what's going on. And we are now joined by this week's guest, first time on the Turn on the Jets podcast from Pro Football Focus, Steve Palazzolo. I think I pronounced it right. I hope I pronounced it right as someone with a lot of vowels in their last name as well. Um, He is a senior analyst and director of video content at Pro Football Focus and Pro Football Focus College. And via the Twitter bio, also a former minor league pitcher. Very nice. Um, Steve, thank you for taking the time for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have to uh, have to have a little shout out to the uh, eight year minor league career before uh, jumping into football. Absolutely. Look, I was a D three wide receiver, far too slow uh, to ever play anywhere <laughs> higher. But good hands, good route running, just incredibly slow and unathletic. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it. So we're going to talk about a range of topics on the Jets roster today, but I think we want to spend most of our time talking about Sam Darnold, who is unquestionably the most critical player on their roster and is probably going to be the X factor either way, whether this is a pleasant surprise of a season or a disappointing season. So when you look at Darnold's rookie year, starts 13 games, finished the season strong uh, when he came back from injury, statistically, what jumped out to you as a positive for him and what jumped out to you as a negative for him? Well, even before the positive negative, I think just the flow of the season uh, was fascinating. You know, he went from uh, early in the season, his, you know, he was okay week one after that pick six to, uh, to kick off his career. And then uh, it got a little bit worse game by game, gets injured. And then when he came back, you know, graded much better in our system. So I think even just the flow 
of the season was an interesting dynamic for Darnold. And it actually mirrored a lot of what he did at USC the previous season where, you know, before he came out, we said, look, if you take away three games, which you can't do, but if you did, he's a top three quarterback in the nation in our grading. But in those three games, he was one of the worst. Uh, there was kind of that dynamic last year where if you just take a few games, he was really, really bad, but the rest of the sample was was pretty good. So it showed a little bit of that inconsistency that he had showed at USC. I think on the on the negative side first, though, you know, he, he did put the ball in harm's way a little bit more than expected. I thought his short area accuracy, you know, in our uh, ball location accuracy numbers, he was a little bit uh, a little bit lower than we expected to see based off what he had, did, uh, had done at USC. I think coming out, he was a guy that we said, you know, short stuff, intermediate stuff, you know, the majority of your NFL throws, he's really, really good. And then the deep ball could certainly use some work. That's kind of been the story of his entire career. I thought last year he was a little bit more inconsistent uh, in the short game. I'd say on the positive side, it was all the plays that he made outside the pocket, outside of structure. And, and that wasn't, um, you know, that wasn't unexpected. I think we saw that at USC. I think that's why I really liked him uh, over a guy like Josh Rosen. I think there were, you know, probably similar players inside the pocket. But once you get them outside of structure and rolling out or having to deal with pressure, uh, you know, I thought Darnold always has a little bit of that uh, outside the pocket magic. It didn't necessarily show in his under pressure numbers, so to speak, but I think he handles the uh, outside of structure plays uh, pretty well. So, so uh, that, and then, you know, he cut back on his fumbles a little bit compared to the previous year at USC. So that was, uh, that was good to see as well. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Is there a particular current starting NFL quarterback that Darnold reminds you of or has similar trends in your guys' system uh, that he reminded you of, you know, coming out of college or that further reminded you of after his rookie year? So, like, what is a, a reasonable comparison for his type of game and his type of production going forward? Man, com- comparisons for me are always scary because I sometimes I just pull like this part of his game reminds me of this guy and this part reminds me of that guy. Um, I will say the one part of his game that reminded me of Philip Rivers was his ability to work the intermediate stuff, you know, throw with anticipation. I think I, I did a whole Twitter thread uh, two years ago before the draft pulling out Philip Rivers' college film and some of the throws that he made that were similar to Darnold and their ability to make you know the inside and outside of structure plays. Um, it's, it's a scary comparison sometimes though, to, to say that just because people will think, oh, he's immediately Phillip Rivers. Rivers has been a top five to eight to 10 quarterback at various points in his career. I don't know that Darnold is necessarily there yet, but I think there are certain elements of his skill set that remind me of him, certainly a little bit more athletic and could probably do a little bit more outside the pocket. But I thought the intermediate stuff and the anticipation, uh, definitely reminded me of Rivers, which was, you know, an advanced part of Darnold's game, I'd say at USC and, Uh, even as a rookie. When you look around the roster that he played with his rookie year, obviously one of the weakest, if not the weakest supporting cast in the NFL, when you factor in, you know, offensive line and some of the players he was forced to be throwing to and handing off to down the stretch last year, the Jets basically, when you look at the additions that they made, particularly offensively, 
where are they going to see the biggest spike and improvement that's going to have a direct impact on Darnold's game uh, from what they've done so far this offseason? Well, you know, I think the interesting dynamic when you look at a bunch of the rookie quarterbacks, whether it's Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, or Josh Rosen, uh, they all had pretty terrible supporting cast. You said it could have been the worst. I think it, it, they were competing with Buffalo and Arizona. So, um, it, you know, it, it does make you think, okay, did we really see uh, the true Darnolds, the true Rosen, the true Josh Allen, given that, you know, situation around them? I do think, uh, obviously, Le'Veon Bell adding him, you know, put the puts the analytics view of what a running back brings to the table aside uh, or how much you should spend on him. Once the running back is on the football field, a guy like Le'Veon Bell adds a ton of value as far as uh, being able to create mismatches, uh, formationing, uh, putting him on, you know, in one-on-one situations against linebackers. And so I do think you know, his ability to, uh, to throw in the short game uh, to a Le'Veon Bell, assuming they tap into that uh, you know, receiving skill set, Obviously, I think he'll be a key component. I think Jamison Crowder, again, in that short area game as far as you know, his, his route running goes as a slot receiver, uh, I, I think that'll be a big help. So I think it's you know, a couple of those pass game uh, short area options that I think will be significant. And I'm a huge fan of Kelechi Assembly coming over. I, I'm just, I'm g- in general, a huge fan of if you're trying to revamp the offensive line, taking a fourth, fifth, sixth-round pick, flipping it for a guy that's done it before. Maybe he had an off year. Maybe he's got some injuries, um, but certainly worth a shot to see what they, they can do. So um, I loved that move, bringing in Assembly as uh, the the Jets you know, have had a rough offensive line and they had to start somewhere, and it's, it's really uh, a low-risk option to bring in a guy that's been a, a really good proven guard in the past. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Looking at Le'Veon Bell, through a deeper lens of analytics, there's there's been some random tweets and commentary out there that if you look at a certain subset of his numbers, D'Angelo Williams and James Conner were equally or more productive. Now, look, I've never been a huge proponent that running back is an overly valuable position, but the Jets had a unique situation with how much cap space they had with Bell being available and desperately needed help for Darnold, so I was in favor of them going after him and how they the ultimate deal that they signed him to, I think all things considered, was reasonable. What Statistically, what is the actual difference from, let's call it you know, a replacement level or an average starting running back, to what Le'Veon Bell brings to an offense as a complete package? Yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to quantify, but you know, our guys have done a much better job of, of taking raw numbers, taking PFF grades, and kind of rolling it into our new uh, wins above replacement metric, which again is similar to what, what we have in baseball. And I think the big thing about running backs is, and, and it's really tough for people to wrap their head around, there's a, different in ta- a difference in talent level. It's, it's fair to say Le'Veon Bell might be more talented or a better player, so to speak, than a bunch of other running backs. And same thing with Zeke Elliott and same thing with Todd Gurley. They're extremely talented players, but it's not proportional to the amount of impact that they have, which is why you say, hey, James Conner had similar production or D'Angelo Williams had similar production or at a macro view, the Pittsburgh offense scored a lot of points, both with and without Le'Veon Bell. That's why those, uh, you know, that's why you see those stats. That's why those things happen. So um, the the tough part to quantify, I think, is just yeah, the difference between a top end guy and uh, the mid tier guy, and it and it's it's less than half a win, uh, you know, year over year. And then the other part about that is just the stability of it. You know, Alvin Kamara has been the most 
valuable running back over the last couple of years, but it's also very tough to bank on him being the most valuable running back this coming year. And he's been the most valuable because of what he does in the past game, his ability to line up out wide and actually create some plays down the field and creating after the catch. So obviously the good part about Le'Veon is that he has that component. He's not just a guy that's running the ball. He does have the ability to affect the pass game. I do think there's a dynamic to his rushing ability that can make the offensive line look a little bit better. He's got just a very unique, uh, patient style, knows how to set up blocks. Uh, I always, it used to almost look like the Pittsburgh offensive line was, wasn't told to necessarily create movement, but just kind of just get on your guy. Don't, you know, just don't lose, essentially. Just create a little bit of a hole and Le'Veon will find it and he'll figure out how to get three, four, five, six yards uh, where it is, you know, where it's available, so to speak. So um, I do think all of those elements kind of add up to Le'Veon being one of the better running backs in the NFL, but you always come back to that dynamic. The difference between the first guy and the mid-tier guy is actually negligible, you know, on a year-to-year basis. Putting Le'Veon Bell aside on the Jets offense, when you look at their, you know, sort of next three to four options or their main four options in the passing game besides him, it's going to be Robbie Anderson, Quincy Nua, Jamerson Crowder, and sophomore tight end Chris Herndon. I think in certain places at first glance, the Jets skill position group or, you know, supporting pass catchers is ranked as sort of a bottom four or five in the NFL. Fans think that's a wildly underrated group as they're more optimistic about guys like Anderson and Anua and Herndon who have shown at different points in their career have been very productive for short stretches of time when they've stayed healthy. Obviously, Herndon had an encouraging rookie year. When you look at that group of pass catchers, putting Levy on Bell's side, knowing that he is a little bit of a question mark as he missed an entire season, what do you think of those four guys as, you know, Darnold's top four targets in the passing game and roughly where they land league-wide in terms of rankings overall? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at them, they are probably in the bottom third to, you know, maybe as low as in, in the bottom five now that uh that's not to say that they can't be productive it's just when you look at the nfl right now a lot of teams are are rolling two and three deep and they've got uh you know a a better mismatch tight end you know herndon was was very good as a rookie i think he was a a pleasant surprise i I do like you know the when you're building a receiving core or a bunch of receiving weapons is you know having uh different styles having guys that can win differently that's why you know i like having a guy like jameson crowder there like i said earlier the ability to win from the slot understand soft spots in zone you know be able to beat man coverage out of the slot robbie anderson has shown that he can be a deep threat in the nfl that is significant and i do think when you talk about uh deep pass numbers it's one of those things where a quarterback can improve a little bit but also the deep pass results are very much driven by the wide receiver so if Darnold has a, a good year throwing the ball 20, 30-plus yards down the field and it coincides with Robbie Anderson continuing to show that he could be that downfield threat, that wouldn't be a huge surprise. So you've got a guy that can stretch the field a little bit. You've got a guy that can work the underneath stuff. You have a guy like Herndon who can stretch the seam. And Nunwa, a little bit more in that possession receiver type of mold. So um, they at least have the different style players. But, you know, I don't think any opposing defense is over there saying, all right, we really have to stop. X or we really have to stop why we really have to stop this one guy I think Robbie Anderson is going to be the guy that will get a little bit more attention um, so it's not a scary wide receiver core but I definitely think that they could be uh, a productive one and then if you did throw do throw Le'Veon into the mix yeah there is uh, a lot of options and ways to create mismatches offensively this is the overtime podcast network Jets obviously replaced coaches this offseason hiring Adam Gase uh, the thought being 
more offensive-minded guy, will be better to work with Sam Darnold. He'll be the head coach and the de facto offensive coordinator as well, so we'll give him a a pass on hiring Dowell Loggins, who has a less than impressive (laughs) resume. Obviously, myself and others were not thrilled with that decision. Gase, personally, I've liked a lot of what the Jets have done this offseason. I'm very happy they moved on from Mike McCagnon. I'm excited they hired Joe Douglas as their new GM. I think they've made some intriguing acquisitions and have more talent on their roster than they've had at least the last three or four years. Gase is the one thing I'm still a little shaky on, I think. Obviously started out very positive in Miami. Uh, Things fell apart pretty quickly there. Uh, What are your thoughts on him more so as a play caller and a designer of offensive game plans? I think it's very interesting the variety of opinions you get on him. Some people think he is this offensive genius, quarterback whisperer, did a lot of creative things and maximized what he had in Miami. Other people think very overrated in those regards, ran a slow tempo offense, was too conservative, wasn't doing anything all that imaginative and blaming all the other problems in Miami on other elements are not fair and that he was a big contributor to them. So what do you think of him as the guy who's going to be basically structuring the offense around Sam Darnold this year? Yeah, I, I think I'm in the middle of both of those extremes because, you know, I think when you do look, I mean, I, I was even the guy that said, you know, Todd Bowles gets fired over the last couple of years. You know, he had the one year where he greatly overachieved. And then then other than that, I don't think the Jets should have really done much more. And I, I kind of feel the same about the Dolphins with Gase. You know, I, I don't think there was ever a point where I looked at that roster and, and whether he had something to do with that or not, you know, that's a little bit of an aside, but I, I don't think I ever looked at the Miami roster and said, man, Gase really underachieved. You know, the fact that they even got to 10 and six in 2016 uh, with an injured Tannehill as well. Um, that's kind of like the Bulls 2015 season where you've got that overachieving season uh, probably shouldn't have been there. Wasn't expected. And in, 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 I think in analytical minds, there's no way you'd expect a team to duplicate that. It's tough for fans to say, say that because you expect to improve every single year. So I don't think Gase did anything completely unexpected in Miami. Uh, if anything, if you look at Ryan Tannehill last year, he was one of our lowest-graded quarterbacks, and I think he ended up top 10 to 15 in, in passer rating. And that's always one of my favorite ways to show how much of the offense was luck or scheme or playmaker-driven or whatever it may have been. And you know, Tannehill got essentially a ton of help from guys creating after the catch uh, the Miami miracle for one uh, you know, a 69 yard touchdown for something that, you know, he didn't really do. So there was a lot of, but there was a lot of just, you know, screen game that worked well. He had five touchdowns on screens. He had a whole bunch of free yardage, so to speak, after not really uh, playing all that well. So to me, when I look at play callers, uh, those are the things I look at. I don't think there's no real consistent trend with Gase always uh, elevating his quarterback's play, so to speak, but or, or the, his production, um, which is why I'm a little bit more in the middle. I've seen him be on the high end of that. I've seen him in the on the lower end of that. But I think, uh, you know, we still, you know, need to see him in, in different situations. I'm intrigued to see him with Donald, but I think he's just kind of in that mid-tier, like that mid-tier quarterback where uh, you get the right season, you get the right group of people, then you can, you know, be elevated into the uh, top tier, so to speak. And I think that's obviously what Jets fans are hoping for. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. One question over on the defensive side of the football, the Jets made a major, major investment in inside linebacker C.J. Mosley this offseason, highest paid inside linebacker in the NFL, unquestionably a very good to great player. What do you think of the value of that position and paying that much for a linebacker who is not 
going to be a pass rusher per se. I don't think there's any doubt that Mosley's a great player. It's just a matter of what type of impact does that position ultimately have? Uh, and why do you think the Ravens decided not to match the ultimate 17 to $18 million per year that the Jets ended up having to fork over to get Mosley to leave Baltimore and come to the Jets? Yeah, obviously the Jets were in a unique situation with their cap space, as you had uh, mentioned earlier. But yeah, it's very difficult to uh, put that type of price tag on a linebacker and match it with value. I think for, for linebackers to have value that even... Uh, comes close to say a cornerback value, uh, you know they they truly have to have uh, outstanding seasons essentially in coverage like a, a 2015 Luke Keekley, uh, Bobby Wagner over the last couple of years. Uh, Mosley hasn't really been uh, you know at that level at least not you know in our grades he's been uh, low 70s you know which is good. It, yeah, I I don't think he's really pressed toward the toward greatness as far as linebackers go. I think he's more of a second or third tier linebacker. So I think it's tough to match the price tag with the value. Um, one thing we don't necessarily quantify is the ability to just simply line guys up and be a leader. And a lot of the stuff that um, inside linebackers are, are valued for in the NFL. So I can't uh, speak to that as much. He's been, but, you know, Mosley's been extremely durable. He gets out there and plays a lot. He is solid across the board, but it is, I think it's always going to be just, it's going to be difficult to justify this dollar for this level of value. Um, but again, it's a unique situation for the Jets for how much money uh, they did have. And you know, as far as Baltimore, I think they're going to be one of the most fascinating studies in the NFL. We had a little—I um, don't want to say epiphany, but we've—you know—our smart guys have been running the numbers and saying, "Look, if you can cover, uh, it can actually, you know, mitigate a lack of pass rush a little bit more than people maybe maybe think around the NFL. Uh, if we had to choose, cover first, find pass rushers second. And the Ravens are kind of doing that, you know, going uh, heavy with their secondary, being really good in the secondary. And their entire front seven has question marks left and right, not only rushing the passer with guys like Terrell Suggs moving on uh, and uh, other guys, uh, Darius Smith moving on, but also C.J. Mosley moving on. So they're going to be a fascinating study to see, did they make the right move to give up a bunch of guys in the front seven to give up some pass rushers to uh, to focus on their corners and safeties a little bit more? When you look at this roster overall compared to Buffalo and Miami, who I think it's the fair assumption that New England's going to win the AFC East again or they're the favorite to win the AFC East again. How does the Jets roster currently stack up uh, against a Buffalo and against a Miami to potentially be the second place team in the division? And then, you know, from their perspective, what tier do they kind of fit in when you're looking at the AFC overall? Are they more in that look? Once you get past the top three, you know, really the fourth through ninth best teams are wide open and they're in that tier. Or do you think they're more down by the, you know, the Cincinnati and the Miami and some of the other teams who are going to be more projected to win four to five games? Yeah, I think I think it's more in the bottom tier of the AFC. But I think within the AFC East, I definitely think Miami is uh, the worst of the of the rosters. I think they're in. Uh, potential two-year tank mode, you know, tank for Trevor Lawrence a couple of years down the road. I don't know if they're really thinking about it, but I think uh, they probably should, you know, based off where the roster is and uh, if they truly do have a long-term plan. I think Buffalo's intriguing because their defense has been really, really good. I think it's been uh, underrated over the last couple of years, and uh, they've just made life difficult on opposing passing offenses, but uh, defense is tough to sustain year over year, and I think Buffalo's success is going to be very contingent on Josh Allen's development, and how well 
John Brown, Cole Beasley, some of those new playmakers, some of the offensive line, you know, very similar to the Jets. You know, how do these new offensive pieces fit in? Um, so I think Buffalo and, and the Jets are, are in a similar boat when it comes to roster and development. I do like Donald better than Josh Allen, so there's an edge uh, right there for the Jets. Uh, my concern for the Jets, though, I think would be, um, you know, just not not feeling great about their secondary. Uh, obviously, I think edge rush edge rusher has been a ten to fifteen year need over there, right in New York. So it's like some of the some of the places where you want to see strengths on the roster. I don't feel great about for the Jets offensive line uh, still needs to come together. We'll see again how much uh, a guy like Assembly can really uh, help out there. So I do think Jets maybe bottom bottom end of the AFC, but they do have the potential to be number two in the AFC East because I think they are right there with Buffalo. All right, final question. Jets draft class uh, was technically still done under Mike McCagnin about a week before he was fired. Uh, they ended up with a six-person class. Highlight picks were Quentin Williams, third overall. Ja'Kai Polite in the third round. Also took Chuma Doga in the third round, addressing the offensive line. Finally, uh, day two uh, added Trevin Wesco, uh, tight end out of West Virginia. What did you think of their first four picks uh, that they made? And more specifically, what did you think of going Quentin Williams, third overall? Yeah, so I thought uh, the best case scenario for the Jets would, would have been to trade down, accumulate picks, and essentially mitigate the trade that they made for Sam Darnold, which was a good trade, the right trade to make the previous year, but it always kind of you know has the opportunity to deplete the roster a little bit. But assuming there was not a trade down option, I do love Quinn and Williams there at number three overall. I think you know he is fantastic with his hands, his ability to disrupt against the run, incredible. Um, just natural feel for playing, you know, one, uh, he'd only played about 150 snaps going into last year, and he was the best interior defensive lineman we've ever graded dating back to 2014 on our snap for snap uh, uh, PFF evaluation system. So he was uh, outstanding as a run defender, outstanding as a pass rusher. And it's, uh, it's one of those picks, you know, I don't, I don't care that Leonard Williams is there and Henry Anderson is there and that you've got um, some pretty good interior players and you've got, you know, maybe, uh, some questions on the edge. I, I don't mind having uh, another really good player there. So Quinnen is fantastic. I thought, uh, you know, Ja'Kai Polite, uh, a guy I was certainly willing to take in the third round, you know, had a terrible offseason as far as workouts go, but he showed a ton of burst at Florida, really got after the quarterback well, had a 90-plus pass rush grade in our system, which is fantastic, especially in the SEC. But it was a little concerning with how poorly he tested, not so much from uh, – the actual number standpoint, but it's like, all right, kid, you know, this is your this is your chance to shine, and it's it's not going great this off season. But I think he put on a little bit too much weight probably in the off season for the for that testing. So there's a chance he could become a pretty good player in the third. And I loved Chuma Adoga. I think for every team that had any kind of offensive line issues, he was the guy. I said late second into the third, get a guy like him who's got a uh, pretty good feel for pass protection. I, you know, his run run blocking's okay. I don't care about that as much. I thought he was a really nice pick there and I think he could uh prove valuable in the coming years and Travon Wesco you know a good a good spot to get a guy like that a bigger tight end that can block a little bit uh do some things in the passing game but yeah more of a role player there and even though you didn't mention Blake Cashman in the fifth it was a weird linebacker class where it was kind of two guys at the top and a whole bunch of uh differences of opinion I think across everybody that evaluated the draft but Blake Cashman was one of those guys who was a little bit undersized but brought a ton of athleticism to the table movement skills and his ability to maybe affect uh, affect the game as a coverage player I think 
uh, makes him a very intriguing pick when you talk about him as a fifth rounder. All right, Steve, we appreciate you taking the time for joining us. Everybody give him a follow on Twitter at PFF underscore Steve. And we'll talk at some point this season. But uh, thank you again. Yeah, you got it. Thanks for having me.